It has now been 400 years since God had spoken through a prophet to his people. Then Jesus enters the scene, being the answer to the prophet Malachi's final words, the Lord you are seeking will come. This section of the journey invites us to embrace the life provided by the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus, though crucified on the cross for our sin, did not stay dead. He rose again, giving assurance that death no longer has the final say when we embrace the life we find in Jesus. Join us today as we look at what it means to embrace upside-down living. Good morning, family. How are we doing? Wonderful. Well, welcome to Grace Spring. We're so excited you're here uh, to worship with us as a family. Man, I just love uh, just the sound of your voices. It was just so powerful this morning to hear you declaring to God who he is. And so thanks for worshiping with us this morning and singing songs to our God. Um, We're entering a stage in our lives, uh, my family, um, that has been very just kind of head-scratching. we are, we're one month away uh, from our daughter turning three. And, you know, it's really interesting. My wife and I were talking about this the other day that it's like, man, all my life, you know, you, you hear about the terrible twos, the terrible twos, the terrible twos. And it, man, if, if like what we've experienced over the last couple months is any indication of the threes, like, wow. And you, you parents who have, who have been through threes, you're like, uh-huh. It's like, it's, it's the divine secret. I'm outing all of you right now. <laughs> but here's the deal. I, I've, um, I'm the kind of person that, like, I, I come up against a problem, and I uh, immediately do what a lot of us do. I go to Google. Um, and so I've spent some time on Google recently, and it's like, how do I deal with threes? How do I cope with threes? How does this child um, make it all the way to adulthood without driving me crazy? Um, am I doing a good job as a parent? I see some head shaking. It's impossible. Yep. And, and so what I found out, though, what I found really interesting is, um, you know, threes, it's a period of time where they're, where they're stretching and changing and growing and pushing against boundaries so that that child can figure out who they are if they have autonomy, where they fit into the world, where they fit into the family. And, and what was really interesting to me is, is a, lot of the, a lot of what I was reading about, they're, they're saying, hold firm boundaries, hold firm rules, hold firm in your parenting together, do it together. And, and what you'll find is that they'll submit to that. And I'm like, you want to come into my house and, and give me a lesson real quick? It's like, you know, you have like the dog whisperer on TV. I need like the toddler whisperer, the super nanny. But here's the deal. Our daughter, I, I've noticed this over the last month or so, is, is she's constantly pushing. She's constantly, um, she's constantly seeking out the world around her and pushing her boundaries. And, and what we found as parents is, is we're trying to find the line between like what is a rule that is going to shape her character and what is a rule that we want her to do just because we want her to do it. Right? And, and, and some of that is like, I mean, it's, it's neither here or there. And I know that, that there's a lot of rules of convenience that, that we've come up with. Uh, it's like, no, I don't want you to go in the backyard right now. Uh, you're not allowed to. It's, the backyard's broken. <laughs> it's amazing how many things are broken. <laughs> But I'm, I'm finding, like, I put myself in her shoes, and there's all of these rules that we ask her to adhere to. Uh, no TV before, before nap. You know, we don't want you to be a mindless zombie watching TV like us. 
we have all of these rules and we're expecting her to, to fall into line. And, and it got me really thinking about our role in the family of faith. Because I, I think what we find sometimes is, is that we're walking along in life and we've had this encounter with Jesus Christ and we begin to walk in his kingdom and we find ourselves kind of like this toddler where we're grasping and stretching and shaping at the boundaries and, and trying to figure out where is my autonomy in this situation. And this morning, we're, we're looking at what it means to be a member of the kingdom of God, what it means to live upside down, because the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom that looks very different from the way that my flesh and my soul and my toddler heart wants to handle things around me. I want what I want, and I want it now. And, and what Jesus' words were to us is, blessed are you when you live this way. And so this morning, we're going to take time and we're going to pick apart some of these statements that, that Jesus himself gave us in the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon of all sermons, the best sermon ever sermoned, and, and we're going to understand what it looks like to live counterculturally, what it looks like to live counter to my flesh, what it looks like to live inside of his kingdom. And so I want to start, um, before we jump into the, the brunt of the text, I want us to understand, this is what Jesus said when, when he started his public ministry, this is in Mark 1. You don't need to turn there. You can just listen for a moment. It says this, that now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel, which we understand that the translation is the good news of God. Jesus came in proclaiming the good news, and this is what he said concerning the gospel. If you've heard me preach, you've heard me probably beat this into your head over and over again, but here's the deal. He said, the time is fulfilled. So the time that we're looking at is the time from Malachi to now in the Bible. The 400 years of silence, the time is fulfilled. The voice of God is here, and this is what he says about the time being fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what I've done is a cursory study of the kingdom of God as mentioned throughout the gospels. And do you know that's one of Jesus's favorite things to talk about, the kingdom of God. There's this duality that happens in scripture. There's the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And, and what kind of happens is these lay over the top of each other. It's not a physical kingdom. And, and what happened is a lot of the followers of Jesus at this point, when they heard the kingdom of God is at hand, they were under oppression. They were under, um, under Roman rule. They were being robbed from. They were being maligned. They were told that they were second-class citizens, that they weren't worth the air that they were breathing and the soil that they were standing on. And so a lot of these people heard Jesus say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what did they think of? Violent revolution. And Jesus is like, this is a violent revolution. But it's going to look a little different than you think it is. Because he didn't come with spears. He didn't come with swords. He came with heart change. And what he said is, if you want to join my kingdom, embrace the gospel, repent of your sins, and follow after me. This is, this is our entry into the kingdom of God. But every kingdom that has ever existed has some physical traits. 
One of those is that there's a king sitting on the throne, and the king is looking out for his people. There have been good kings, there have been bad kings, but we have the best king. We have the king of kings. And he's sitting on his throne, and he's telling us, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, this is how you live. These are the laws. These are the decrees. This is what protection looks like. This is what my providence looks like. This is what my care looks like. This is the resources that you have availability to. When you live in my kingdom that that is superimposed on the kingdom of the earth, This is how you live. And a lot of us, myself included, I get so wrapped up in the kingdom of the flesh that I forget what it means to live in the kingdom of God. That's why we call it the upside down kingdom because what looks like up in my American world can often look like upside down in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to explain some of that in just a moment. But I want us to realize that the kingdom exists wherever the king is on his throne. The kingdom of God exists wherever the king is on his throne. In my heart, the kingdom of God exists. And my footprints, as I walk throughout this world, talk about a better way, a better kingdom, a better way to live our life and to understand what real life is. And the other thing that I want us to realize is when he talks about the gospel and he says, the kingdom of God is here, this is the gospel. The gospel fully means from start to finish that it's nothing I can ever do on my own. Ephesians talks about that. Your salvation is a free gift of God, so you can't take credit for it. And so I want us to understand, first and foremost, I'm going to give us a disclaimer about everything that we're going to be talking about today. And I hope you'll hear me in this. When I read these words from the Beatitudes, and as we start to study what some of these words mean and and look into the character traits and how we're supposed to live— can, can, can I just tell you, God isn't expecting you to figure it out on your own. Can I just tell you that it's not something that you can bootstrap your way into, that you can try harder into? I literally, God is saying, here's the gospel, that you and your worst were so worthy of my love because I loved you, that I gave you my best and I took your worst. I died for your sins and I gave you a new life. And in that new life, I gave you everything you need to exist in the kingdom. Can we all like, I mean, we don't have to try. We don't have to try. We just have to embrace. Can we like take a, like, does that feel freeing to anybody else? Like, man, I don't have to try harder. I don't have to like work my way into this. Jesus Christ in in his loving, merciful self looked at me and said, look, I chose you. Here are the gifts. Walk in them. So when we study the Beatitudes, every every single thing that that Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, like, unburden yourself. Take it off. Take off the trying because I'm giving you this gift. Now walk in it. That doesn't excuse our part in, in actually taking a hold of that and putting it on. But, man, I don't have to earn it. And that should be, like, beautifully freeing. I don't have to earn it. What I want us to do... Before we walk into the Beatitudes, I want us to take a look. Um, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Matthew 5. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 962. If you're using your phones, it's three clicks and you're there. <laughs> and before we get into the Beatitudes, I'd like for us to read a little bit after that. We're going to start in verse uh, 13. This is what it says. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so I want us to understand before we jump into these Beatitudes too, first of all, you can't earn it. First of all, Jesus hands it to us. He, he, he gives us the keys to the mansion. And second of all, he follows the Beatitudes with a very important understanding. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. And your light so shining will show others what it's like to have a relationship with me. And so as we're looking at the Beatitudes and we're looking at this understanding, it's for me. But I also, make no mistake, it's for my neighbor. When I walk in this way and I, and I live inside the kingdom of God, putting my footsteps in the places that God has told me to go, it's not only for myself, but it's to shine a light towards my neighbor. What did God tell Abraham all of those ages ago? I'm going to start a covenant with you. Your people will be my people. And through you, all nations will be what? Blessed. And that's what, what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's saying all of these character attributes, all of these things I've just described to you, I want you to understand you're, you're the salt of the earth. You give flavor to the earth around you. You are a light on a hill. You shine the light and shine, shine the way through the darkness so that other people can find me. And in doing and in living the kind of life that is a kingdom life, an upside down life, uh, bringing the kingdom with you wherever you go, you're doing what's favorable to me. So here, we're going to get started. This is what it says in Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Selah. Amen. Men. Can I, can I ask, when we look at these words and when we hear those words, in our natural and fleshly way of living, that doesn't sound very powerful. I mean, we know different, right? But man, Blessed are you when you show mercy and, and meekness? Like, is that going to get you to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company? Mercy? Meekness? 
that's what's so upside down and so interesting about the way that, that Jesus talks about his kingdom is that the things that, that normally look opposite are the things that he values. We're going to take time and we're going to spend the rest of our morning this morning unpacking seven of these statements. Because what we'll find is that as we read, the first seven of these deal directly with our character, directly with how we approach life, directly with the gifts that, that Christ has given us to walk as citizens of the kingdom. The last two after that deal with how others treat us because of that character. I'll give that caveat, because of that character. And we're going to talk about those just a little bit, but I really want us to focus in here and learn from the master teacher, not me, these are his words, what it means to be a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. So first and foremost, this is what Jesus talked about. The very first one, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. That's a, a heavy one to start off with. And I think sometimes like our English language doesn't do us any favors because when we hear poor in spirit, it, it gives us an automatic negative image. Lowly, broken, woe is me, sackcloth and ashes. Can I describe for you what, what poor in spirit means and, and what Jesus is talking about here? It means knowing with a radical knowledge that everything of myself is stripped bare and realizing the absolute poverty of my soul without Jesus Christ. Have you ever been poor? Like, let me tell you, when I moved to Michigan to marry Monica, um, I moved with like, it, it, was, it was, I don't know what I was thinking. Like this was seven years ago, Kenneth, but man, I moved with like a couple hundred bucks to my name. You know, I was renting a place that was a couple hundred bucks a month. And, like, I, I can remember nights with Monica where, like, we, we walked over to, to Harding's, uh, the, like a, a version of a Spartan store in Grand Rapids, and we were like, all right, tonight we can get a bag of potatoes, a cheap loaf of bread, a cheap block of cheese. We're going to have the best dinner ever. It's going to be awesome. And we put a puzzle together, right? The problem is, like, we lived all the way across town from each other, and I just kept thinking to myself, like, where am I going to get the gas to go and see this woman that, that I moved to Michigan for? <laughs> you know, how am I going to eat tomorrow? And what happens is when we're poor, when we're, when we're poverty stricken, and, and I want to give the caveat there, I realize that, that like even in that situation, that because I'm in America, I was richer than a lot of other places. But like you feel it because we live a life of privilege and when you start to feel those things taken away from you, it consumes everything inside of you. Right? I would wake up thinking about money. Like, okay, if I move this dollar amount to this account, and if I switch this around, and if I make this payment now, then, I mean, you know, right? We, we, start to, we just start to think through all of those things. Like, my dream in that was to be able to, like, drift off into space while I was pumping gas, right? Like, not having to worry about, like, every penny that was on the little thing. It consumes you. Have we been at a place in our walk with Jesus that the poverty of our heart consumes us? What do I mean by that? Have you ever been so wrecked by your poor heart, by your poor spirit, that it was all you thought about and, and the need that you had? 
when I'm poor in, in riches, when I'm poor in money, that's all I think about. I wake up thinking about it. I go to sleep thinking about it. I think about it through the day. Every transaction that I need to make, I think about it. When was the last time, and, and not in a guilt way, but when was the last time that, that we approached God that way, thinking, man, I have nothing except for you, and when I don't feel you in my heart, that's all I think about. I am depraved, I'm deprived, I'm broken, I'm full of stress, I'm full of anxiety. Lord, I am poor in spirit, and all I need is a touch from you, because that's where the infinite riches come from. This is the, the, the economy of the kingdom, is that when I realize that, that I am emptying myself of everything that I thought was valuable, and everything that I've been holding on to, and everything that I think that I can build on my own, that's when the kingdom of God is mine. He starts with this because he's like, let's, let's go back to square one here. Anything that you think you're bringing into this relationship, got news for you, man. Filthy rags. Paul talked about that, right? My righteousness in and of myself is but filthy rags. And I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but here's the deal. Anything that I bring to the table needs to be crucified and purified so that Jesus can use it. It's not until I realize the poverty of my spirit that I'm useful. Because until then, I'm just going to trip all over myself in my own pride and my own self-satisfaction and my own self-righteousness and think that I'm worthy of praise, think that I'm worthy of, of being somebody, think that I'm worthy of anything. The gospel tells me that I'm good enough because he was good enough for me. When I'm poor in spirit, then I walk in the kingdom of God. Then I inherit the kingdom of God. Because I realize my place in this earth. It's about, it's about humility. It's about realizing my own station in the world. And the only good thing inside of me is Jesus. The character that I like to cling on to, that's Jesus. It's only when I make mistakes that that's me. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Second one here is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How many of us like to mourn? I, I honestly believe like, that, that this is something, I was reading a book recently that talked about like we have this aversion to grief and mourning in, in America like no other culture. We're so fast-paced, microwave, order it on Amazon, that we kind of treat our grief and mourning that way sometimes, right? I'm Irish. We like to just shove it down. Oh, it's okay. I'm stronger than this, this mourning and grief that I'm feeling. Yeah, I can do this, right? We just keep on shoving and shoving until it explodes. And that's some of us, right? There's others of us that like stay broken in the grief. It's like, I will never get over this ever. I'm going to die this way. Jesus tells us that we're blessed when we mourn. Because there are certain lessons in our life that we will never be able to unlock until we're able to mourn. There are certain feelings of God's presence in our life that we will never be able to understand unless we mourn, unless we walk through grief, unless we understand his sorrowful heart. 
We at Jesus, one of the things we like to call him is the suffering servant. So he died for our sins. But before that, he walked in into the garden and he drank deeply from the cup and felt all of our sin, felt all of our grief, felt all of our brokenness, and he mourned. He, he, he cried out to the Father in that moment and said, Lord, if it's possible, could you take this cup from me? Do you understand like what he was feeling, the, the weight of our sin and our heartbreak? He was grieving. He was mourning. He asked him again, could you take this cup from me? But not my will, but your will be done. You understand, when he died on the cross, he, he, he was up there hanging, and the Father had turned his back on him because he was wearing all of these sins, and, and he asked God, why, why have you abandoned me? The grief and the weight of the Son who was always in step with his Father throughout his life. The disciples look at him, where'd you go? I went to spend time with my Father. And in that moment, feeling the weight of the sin and the father couldn't even look at him because of all of the egregious sins that we owned that sat on his shoulders that he was carrying on the cross. Hebrews 4 tells us that that we have a high priest who is familiar with every single emotion and sin that we've walked through. And that priest is Jesus Christ. So what are we doing with our grief? Do we sit in it forever? Do we ignore it? Or do we hand it over? And I'm not saying like hand it over so that you'll get over it. What I'm saying is hand it over to a savior who says, I feel those things and I know those things and I've walked in those shoes and and the answer is my presence. The answer is what I want to do through you. It's not so that, that you'll move down the road, but it's so that I can sit in that with you and help you understand that, that I walked through those things and I did it perfectly. And my presence is the answer. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. When I mourn in the way that Jesus calls me to, what I do is I invite him into the process, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, a friend who will listen to everything that I have to say and and even listen to me looking at him and saying, you know what, you did this to me, this is not fair, and he still responds to me in love. In the deepest of our mournings, Our Savior understands, and he cares, and he offers us his presence. And remember the salt and light thing? When we mourn, and we experience Christ in the morning, we turn into salt and light that understands mourning and can be available to others to point them towards that source. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's not anything that I can do. I can't out-grief myself. I can't shove it down and make it go away, but the Holy Spirit of God can sit with me as my advocate and my my advisor. Jesus Christ, who experienced all of those things, can sit with me and, and understand what I'm walking through and walk through it with me. There's no comfort greater than that, friends. And if you feel like there is, can I invite you to invite him in? The third beatitude is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How many of you ever thought about the word meek as like weak? Ah, that person was so meek, right? Somebody literally like standing on the outside of a crowd and like, you know, whispering their opinions. Um, um, I, I need to say something, right? 
That's what I think of when I think of meekness. But, but the Greek word for meekness here is this beautiful picture, right? And I don't want to like get graphic here, but here's, here's what the Greek picture of meekness means. Is it, it means that I can hold a bunny rabbit, a cute little bunny rabbit. And I know that because of my muscles and because of my strength, I could take that bunny rabbit and I could, but I'm not going to. You're welcome. Because I know my strength, but I also know what's wise. It's strength and restraint. Meekness is having the power to crush, but knowing not to. Meekness is having all of the wisdom in the world, but knowing when not to speak. Meekness is walking humbly with God so much that he transforms my mind and helps me to speak life into dark places. Meekness is knowing my seat at the table and sitting there confidently because of whose I am and who I am. What's interesting is this picture of they shall inherit the earth. What Jesus was talking about here is he's looking at all of these people who had been oppressed and they'd been called meek by the Roman government. See, the Romans didn't have a good understanding of what meek meant. They said, oh, you're so meek, you're so weak, we're going to crush you. And they're being displaced from their homes, and they're being uh, put out. They're being thrown out on, on their heads. And what Jesus is saying here is, is real meekness. At the end of the day, when the dust settles, you're going to be the ones who inherit the earth. In my meekness, I know to log off of Facebook instead of saying that. In my meekness, I know that a dinner party isn't always the time to bring up everything I've ever thought about. (laughs) In my meekness, when I'm walking beside somebody in sin, knowing when to take out my Bible and hit them over the head and when to listen. It's not always turn or burn. Sometimes it's, man, that sounds really hard. I'm here for you. And not calling out the sin immediately. But how will they know that, they, that we love them? Keep showing up. Meekness is humility. It's strength and restraint. And in that, we will inherit the earth. The fourth beatitude here, I need to hurry up. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Can I tell you about the hungriest I've ever been in my life? This was not, I'm not telling you this, so you'd be like, man, what what a feat of strength. That was so awesome. One time, I had a dear friend of mine in college who was diagnosed with a disease, and it was um, very taxing on his body, and he was very broken. And I felt... um, there's the only way to express it. Like, I, I felt like the Holy Spirit was calling me to fast for him. And I fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. With no, and like I said, this is what the Holy Spirit told me to do, so I did it. Fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, no food, only water. And can I tell you, like day three or four, I mean, you remember that poverty thing I was talking about? Food's worse, man. Like, 
every thought that I had was how hungry I was. It was like during the college national championship, like I was invited to like a, to a, a watch party, like to, to watch the college national championship and there were wings and there was pizza and I'm just like, I'm fine with my lemon water, thank you. Every single thought, every, every ounce of my being, like my, my dreams, like I'm driving and the clouds turned into buffalo wings. And it, and it drove me to prayer because I made that commitment. Every time I think about food, I'm going to pray instead. And can I tell you, it was like one of the most enriching things in my life. I don't think everybody should do it. I think you should do it if the Lord calls you to. But, but I, I say all of that to help you understand that, that when you are hungry, when you are thirsty, everything else goes out the window. Like Snickers, right? You're not you when you're hungry. When was the last time we thought about righteousness in that way? When was the last time that, that our pursuit of holiness and purity and righteousness and rightness in the eyes of God was that all-consuming inside of us that, that we can't rest until we get it. We can't do another thing in, until we get it. We, we look at the clouds and all we see is like the Holy Spirit, right? And, and when we turn on the radio, it's like, man, I, I got to put this stuff away because I need righteousness. I need holiness. I, I need to see God in this way. I, I don't know that I've ever hungered for it the way that I hungered for food in those 40 days. But this is the imagery that Jesus is using. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. What, what God is saying is I have an infinite supply of holiness and righteousness and wholeness that I want to pour out on you. I will satisfy you till you're overflowing, but you got to hunger for it. You got to thirst for it. It's like that C.S. Lewis quote, right? That, that sometimes we're, we're so enamored by the things of the world, by, by what we're going to eat and what we're going to drink and, and what we're going to do that, that we don't dream big enough. I am so very distractible. Am I hungering and am I thirsting? Do I really want to be satisfied or am I just saying that I want to be satisfied? Because sometimes in my own life, I'm like, oh man, God, I want you to move so much. And then I'm doing everything else that, that makes it seem like I don't really want him to move. Can I be honest? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When Jesus was filled with, this is not the same Greek word here that Jesus uses when he preaches about mercy, but there's another Greek word that, that used every time um, that he did healing and it said he was moved with compassion. He was moved with mercy. It, it meant that he felt it so deeply inside of himself. It was like a burning in his belly, in his bowels. That's what the Greek is, kind of gross term. Deep in his stomach, he felt he, he was so disturbed within himself that he had to heal. Blessed are those who have received mercy deeply from the Father and so they can't help but pour that mercy back out on others. And what is mercy? Letting someone off the hook. And I know there are deep times of injustice. There are deep times where that's not always possible. But man, I've been let off the hook so much for things that I owed. Whew. How can I not be merciful to others? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. For they shall see God. 
purity of heart. You know, the thing is God created us in his image. Tells us that all the way back in Genesis 1. We're created in God's image. And then the sin that, that Adam sinned broke that image. And all through history, God has been working as a refining fire until he can see his image in us again. And that image looks like Jesus Christ superimposed over the top of us so that when he sees us, that, that we are pure, but he asks us to purify our hearts, to hand over the yuck and the nasty and the brokenness and the things that make us think poorly of others, the things that make us think poorly of ourselves, the things that give us grief, the things that, that make us continue to sin, and, and he's simply asking for them. And that's where it can feel like work, right? Oh God, I want to be pure in heart, but you know, you know, you know all this stuff that, that's deep down inside of here, but I mean, what does it look like to just be like, I don't know, God, like, I just want to hand it to you, and I'm going to keep trying to hand it to you, and I know my heart is wicked, but I want to hand it to you, and, and you can keep purifying. What does it look like to invite the pruning and the purifying of God to the point that, yes, it hurts, but man, this is the only way. Are we hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Are we just dabbling? We dipping our toes in the fire. <laughs> Ouch! No, never mind. When I'm purified by God, I see God. That's what he tells us when, I mean, it reminds me of David's words, right? Who can ascend the hill of the God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's when I'll see the face of God. The seventh and final one we want to look at here. Blessed are those, uh, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I think of the words of Paul Do your best to be at peace with everyone. We think of peace as like um, cozying up on the couch on a rainy day with a candle and drinking coffee and Instagramming at first. But what Jesus is talking about here is being a peacemaker. Someone who walks through strife and walks through brokenness with the end goal of peace. Being a counselor, being a mediator, not being willing to let the sun go down on sin, on disagreements, on brokenness. And, and once again, I, I say, I know that there are some situations where that is not possible, but, but at best, as possible within you, be a person of peace. Then we'll be called sons and daughters of God. God hunted me down with his peace and didn't rest until I found it inside of myself. And he wants us to do that in the world around us. Now, I, I have a few little clarifications here. These seven lessons, they're all things that God wants to give us. It's character that he wants us to embody as he enables us to do it. This last little bit here, I think is really important. And I want to draw out a very quick line. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And uh, uh, do all other kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've seen some wicked persecution in the last couple weeks. My heart's been breaking for believers across seas that I mean, literally persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
my fear is that, that sometimes, as Americans, we get our rights trampled a little bit and we're like, man, look how I'm being persecuted. It's not for our rights' sake. It's for righteousness' sake. Can I say it's... doesn't say, blessed are you when you're persecuted for your political opinion. doesn't say, blessed are you when you're persecuted because you did or didn't wear a mask, or you did or didn't get a shot, or you did or didn't. It doesn't say that. A lot of us, like, like walk, walk around and we, like, bring all of our own viewpoints and all of our own thoughts and all of our own issues into this thing with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. Not because of thoughts that you brought into this. Not because of the way that you're trying to live your life that, that, that does or doesn't line up with this. Look, this is what it tells us about being righteous right here. Follow the gospel. Trade in your thoughts for the thoughts that God gives you. Try to walk your best in that. And when you're persecuted because of that, that's when you're blessed. And a lot of us are like, man, I, I, I'm trying so hard and I'm so hurt and I can't believe that somebody would say that about me. Maybe it's because you're mean. Can we follow Jesus? I mean, like, really follow him and, and like, eliminate the blind spots and, and anything else that doesn't align with this work and this world. And I know that there are valid points from other people, and they take slivers of this truth and try to inject it so that we believe it. But, 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 but can we be nice? Can we follow him? Can, can we be people who are poor in spirit and, and who are meek and who are merciful and who hunger and thirst after righteousness? If I'm hungering for anything else in this world, I will not be satisfied. God's heart for you is that you will follow him so much that you won't be distracted by the things on the right or on the left so that you're so in tune with his Holy Spirit that walking in the kingdom isn't a chore, that, that you are so in tap with the Father's love for you that you'll never doubt it again for the rest of your life that the anxieties of this world and the brokenness of this world and the frustrations of this world and the things that we're all arguing about. He wants us to be at peace with him. He wants us to be at peace with each other. And, and guys, I'm just so tired of it. I'm so tired of the division. I'm so tired of the brokenness when he's given us a path forward. Get your eyes off of yourself and put your eyes on me. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be meek. For goodness sake, be meek. Be merciful. So we're all poor in spirit. We really are. I love you all so much. And like I'm, every time I turn on the computer, it's like repentant city for me because of all the things I'm thinking and all the things that are going through my head. And can I tell you, like, I, I just want to call us to holiness. I struggle with it. If I'm being honest, I struggle with holiness, right? Because I'm a human. I've still got flesh and, and human blood running through me. But man, 
can we like, can we look at those seven parts of our character? Can we really meditate on those and just be like, God, what do I need from you and how do I walk in it? What do I need from you and how can I walk in it? Because I feel broken. I feel like other people are broken. I feel like there's so many things swirling around in this world around me and I don't know how to square it all up. We don't have to. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. That's all. We're going to take communion this morning. I'm excited about that because communion is an opportunity for us to to get back to the heart of what Jesus did for us, right? He he looked at us and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. As, As often as you take these things, do it in remembrance of me. And so what I want us to do this morning, let's not look to the left. Let's not look to the right. Let's look squarely at Jesus. What I would encourage you guys to do is as, as family units or friend units or whatever, I encourage you to go to the communion tables, grab the elements, bring them back to your seat. And what I really would love if you would do, and this, I'm going to be doing this, I, it, I think it's going to help us a ton. I'm putting these words back up on the screen. And as you reflect on your time in communion, as, re- as you reflect on the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us, as you reflect on his body that was broken for us, could you look at, at these seven character traits that, that Jesus pours into us? And, and could you say like, Lord, where do I need to grow? What do I need to do to look more like you? What do I need to do to do this in remembrance of you right now? Because I do a lot in remembrance of me. And then take communion. Praying, consecrating yourselves, handing yourself over to a holy God who loves you more than you can ever imagine. So much so that he says, this upside down way of living is the best way of living. Let's me off the hook. It's a life of trust. Lord, help me to trust. Help me to face that down. Lord, you take over. You're a better God than I am. So let's reflect on these words and take communion when you're ready. Love you guys.